And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. Yay! What are we talking about today, Maggie? Today we're talking about pride poetry. We're highlighting two, maybe three, depending on time constraints, gender nonconforming poets, which is very exciting. It is very exciting. So this month is pride, and it's been a weird pride because... I mean, first of all, we had the COVID, so who knows what's going on with all those fun parades and everything. And now we as a nation are really trying to face our racist history and our current racist structures. And so I think that usually for most people, Pride is like this glittery time where we all celebrate ourselves. But for a lot of us, we're trying to celebrate ourselves and also really contend with ourselves and and look at how we have wronged others, right? So Maggie and I decided to do this episode on poetry, and we're looking to fight these injustices as we fight for Black lives, and we're particularly looking to let others appreciate and to fight for Black queer lives, because I think that's where we as a nation, especially when we're looking at pride, need to be focusing on right now. It's not necessarily a weird pride. I think it's a pride that's going back to pride's roots of like the Stonewall riots and stuff. Like it's definitely unprecedented, I think, in our time, especially given the fact that, you know, even in 2015, when sort of these first protests were really starting, like it it didn't it didn't coincide with pride in the same way. But like, it's really just sort of it's dovetailing, I think. Yeah, it just feels weird. I mean, I remember going to New York City's Pride last year, and it was kind of, we went with my guest, or we went as guests, a group of us, who, for, for one of my friends who identifies as queer, but is still kind of like new to to identifying as queer. And so she wanted us to come there and like kind of be her support system. And it was like, we, we went to the the Pride. There were two Prides going on in New York City. And one of them was like this big corporation-based Pride. And one was like this anti-corporation-based Pride. And we went to the corporation-based one because that was the one that we could easily get to and the one she wanted to go to. So it just like, it does feel, this year versus last feels very weird. I know that at the retail store I was working at, for instance, we had all of these cool new items coming out. And I get that like capitalizing off of pride isn't great, but it was like, it was this nice kind of like fluffy celebration. And this year, I think what I'm seeing and feeling, and when I talk to a lot of my friends, I think they concur. It's a lot of, this is happening, but like, I really still want to fight for George Floyd and his life. And so I think that a lot of us are trying to focus on that intersection between fighting for gay rights and celebrating gay rights but also fighting and celebrating Black rights. And, you know, you can be both. So. <laughs> but you're right. It is much more like the the start of Pride, its origin story. For sure. But yeah, as Harmony was saying, we pulled some truly harrowing statistics from the HRC, which, Harmony, do you know what the HRC stands for? I don't know off the top of my head. It's the Human Rights Campaign. In 2019, first of all, there were 20, there were at least 26 violent deaths of trans or gender nonconforming people in the U.S. And why I say at least is because according to the HRC and other organizations I've seen, it's really, really hard to get accurate numbers on trans-related violence or gender nonconforming-related violence because a lot of it goes unreported or misreported. And in 2020, so far, there have been at least 12 of these deaths. And it's also really important to note that, like, most 
of these deaths are Black transgender women disproportionately. So we want to take a minute and read the names and some short descriptions of the lives that have been lost this year. Dustin Parker, 25, was fatally shot in McAllister, Oklahoma, early on New Year's Day. His employer released a statement shortly after his death, remembering Parker as a steadfast friend, an amazing husband and father, and generous to a fault. He loved fiercely, worked tirelessly, and took on life with so much hope and enthusiasm that his presence brightened all of our lives. Nulisa Luciana Ruiz was fatally shot in Tol Baja, Puerto Rico, on February 24th, according to Metro Puerto Rico. Members of her community knew her as, quote, humble and, quote, noble. Yampi Mendez Orocho, 19, was killed in Mocha, Puerto Rico on March 5th. Orocho, a transgender man, shared his love for basketball in the NBA, donning Miami Heat apparel on social media. The biography line on his Facebook simply reads, Humanity Prevails. Monica Diamond, 34, a Black transgender woman, was killed in Charlotte, North Carolina on March 18th. Diamond was active in the Charlotte LGBTQ and nightlife community and was the co-owner of an event promotion company. She was the co-CEO of the International Mother of the Year pageantry system, a pageant that honors LGBTQ mothers. Lexi, 33, a transgender woman, was killed in Harlem, New York on March 28th. According to reports, Lexi was fatally stabbed in Harlem River Park. I really looked up to her because of her tolerance and respect, said Livonia Brooks, a friend of Lexi. Lexi had a beautiful heart. She was very gifted. Brooks also noted that Lexi loved poetry, makeup, and fashion. Johanna Metzger, a transgender woman, was killed in Baltimore, Maryland on April 11th. According to reports, she was visiting a Baltimore recovery center from Pennsylvania at the time. Johanna was known for her love of music and taught herself to play multiple instruments. Serena Angelique Velasquez Ramos, 32, was killed in Puerto Rico on April 21st. Ramos was killed alongside Leila Pelea Sanchez, 21. According to reports, Ramos was visiting the island on vacation and was set to return to her home in Queens, New York at the end of the month. Loved ones are mourning her death, calling her full of life, a happy person, and a sincere friend. On May 1st, two men were charged under federal hate crimes law for Ramos's death. Leila Peleas Sanchez, 21, was killed in Puerto Rico on April 21st. Sanchez was killed alongside Serena Angelique Valasquez Ramos. According to reports, Sanchez had recently moved to the island and was living in the Tejas neighborhood in Las Piedras on May 1st. Two Puerto Rican men were charged under federal hate crimes law for Sanchez's death. Penelope Diaz Ramirez, a transgender woman, was killed in Puerto Rico on April 13th. Penelope did not deserve to die. Transgender people do not deserve to die. Every single advocate, ally, elected official, and community member must stand up in the light of this horrific news and say no more. What we are doing is not enough, said Tori Cooper, HRC Director of Community Engagement for the Transgender Justice Initiative. Nina Pop, a Black transgender woman, was killed in Sykeston, Missouri on May 3rd. She was deeply loved by her family, friends, and community, according to her Facebook page. Heli J. O'Regan, 20, a transgender woman, was killed in San Antonio, Texas, on May 6th, O'Regan was proud of her trans identity, and on Twitter, she often spoke out against injustice, including the LGBTQ inequality, prison industrial complex, and the need to decriminalize sex work. Damian Trell Campbell, 42, has been charged with O'Regan's murder. Tony McDade, a Black transgender man, was killed in Tallahassee, Florida, on May 27th. His friends and family shared how he was an energetic, giving person with a big heart. So today we've collected poems from three, maybe two. We've already talked about that, authors. And the first one is Dana Smith. Do you want to give their biography or do you want me to? Yeah, I can. So Dinesh Smith uses they, them pronouns as a Minnesota native. They've written two books of poetry, Don't Call Us Dead, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. Insert Boy, which was written in 2014, which was the winner of the Lambda Literary Award and the Kate Tufts Discovery Award, according to the Poetry Foundation. And they also co-host the podcast Verse is alongside Franny Choi. Um, so we're going to read a poem or like talk about a poem called Don't Call Us from Don't Call Us Dead called Dear White America, which is probably one of their most famous poems. It really has, I think, struck a chord amongst a lot of people. And Smith also, so they have two books published, but they're also a 
really passionate spoken word poet and I highly suggest that you go listen to them read Dear White People on YouTube afterwards. They have a ton of videos of their readings of it because it really just gives a passionate depth and voice to this work that's like truly beautiful. Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? You can read it. Okay. Dear White America, I've left Earth in search of darker planets, a solar system revolving too near a black hole. I've left in search of a new god. I do not trust the god you have given us. My grandmother's hallelujah is only outdone by the fear she nurses every time the blood-fat summer swallows another child who used to sing in the choir. Take your god back. Though his songs are beautiful, his miracles are inconsistent. I want the fate of Lazarus for Renisha. Want Chucky, Bo, Meech, Trayvon, Sean, and John Laya, risen three days after the year there entombing. Their ghosts regifted flesh and blood. Their flesh and blood regifted their children. I've left Earth. I'm equal parts sick of your go back to Africa, and I just don't see race. Neither, neither did the poplar tree. We did not build your boats, though we did leave a trail of kin to guide us home. We did not build your prisons, though we did, and we filled them too. We did not ask to be a part of your America, though are we not America? Her joints brittle and dragging a ripped down through Oakland? I can't stand your ground. I'm sick of calling your recklessness the law. Each night, I count my brothers, and in the morning, when some do not survive to be counted, I count the holes they leave. I reach for black folks and touch only air. Your master magic trick, America. Now he's breathing. Now he don't. Abra cadaver. White bread voodoo. Sorcery you claim not to practice. Hand my cousin a pistol to do your work. I tried, white people. I tried to love you. But you spent my brother's funeral making plans for brunch, talking too loud next to his bones. You took one look at the river, plump with the body of a boy after girl after sweet boy, and asked, why does it always have to be about race? Because you made it that way. Because you put an asterisk on my sister's gorgeous face. Call her pretty for a black girl. Because black girls go missing without so much as a whisper of where. Because there are no Amber Alerts for amber-skinned girls. Because Jordan boomed. Because Emmett whistled. Because Huey P. spoke. Because Martin preached. Because black boys can always be too loud to live. Because it's taken my papa and my grandma's time, my father's time, my mother's time, my aunt's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time. How much time do you want for your progress? I've left Earth to find a place where my kin can be safe, where black people ain't but people the same color as the good, wet Earth until that means something. Until then, I bid you well. I bid you war. I bid you our lives to gamble with no more. I've left Earth, and I am touching everything you beg your telescopes to show you. I'm giving the stars their right names. And this life, this new story, and history you cannot steal or sell or cast overboard or hang or beat or drown or own a red or red line or shackle or silence or cheat or choke or cover up or jail or shoot or jail or shout or jail or shoot or ruin. This, if only this one is ours. Yeah, that's a really powerful poem. This one deals a little bit less with the author's gender identity than some of the others that we've picked out to talk about today. But I think that especially given everything that's going on in the country right now, it felt like really relevant that we speak about this poem for a lot of, for just like every reason, for all of the reasons that we've been talking about and will continue to talk about for the rest of forever. Where do you want to start, Harmony? I want to know, so in this poem, if you see it written, even though Smith is a spoken word poet as well, it is written in lowercase letters for like the start of sentences, particularly with eyes. Excuse me. And Maggie is a bit of a spoken word poet expert in my eyes. So I'd like to know why you think that is. Well, first of all, this is a, this is something they do in all of their poetry is that they don't capitalize the letter I and they use a lot of lowercase poetry. It's a stylistic thing. So it's not like specific to this poem i don't think it necessarily imbues this poem with like extra meaning just because they do it across everything and i think that it's also pretty common in the spoken word community it's not like the thing everyone does but like smith is definitely not the only person who uses lowercase letters i use lowercase letters in a lot of my poetry when it's written out and 
I don't really know why, to be perfectly honest with you. For me, I think that it's just one of those things where it, it a lot of poetry written down, you're also thinking about how the poem physically looks on the page. And I think that, and this is like just speaking for me, I think that for me, a lot of times capital letters can interrupt a flow, especially a kind of stream of conscious flow, which I think that this poem does really well in a lot of places where like things just flow very naturally thought wise one into the other. And therefore, when I use a capital letter, I'm using it very specifically to like emphasize that something is extra important. And I think that a lot of the times Smith's poetry isn't necessarily about it's it is about them and their experience but they're speaking to something bigger than just the i you know so de-emphasizing that de-emphasizing the self and therefore emphasizing the other things that they're talking about i think is probably one reason that they choose to do it okay that makes sense yeah so i had a lot highlighting this poem i mean it begins with talking about god and it begins with talking about a new a new planet right that white people can't steal and that really the new planet thing really really struck me for where we are today with george floyd a lot of us are trying to defund the police a lot of us are trying to disband police departments and really work better with with our police departments like maybe even you know completely overriding our justice system but what really struck me with like in comparison to this poem to what we're dealing with today is that our society is so deeply rooted in racism and it's not just in America, right? We see, we see it all over the world. Everyone is standing with George Floyd and because of colonization and globalization all over the world, there is white influence. And so to me, it really struck a chord because I believe strongly that we have to kind of start from scratch. We have to completely rework the way we do everything if we actually do want to tackle racism in any sort of meaningful way, because these structures are all, especially in America, these structures are all built on the oppression of one people. So the idea of going to another planet was was meaningful to me because it was like, but there was also, there was a... It's not completely equivalent because in this in this world, right, this poet or the speaker, the speaker is taking their people and just their people to this planet, right? They're leaving the rest of us behind so that we can deal with our crazy oppressive ways for ourselves without them. And I'd like a world where, you know, hopefully I can still exist because I am white, <laughs> but like hopefully I can still exist, but the concept of race is completely reworked and all of our structures are completely reworked. I don't know. What do you think about the world concept, Maggie? I thought it was really interesting, but I think that something Smith does really smartly is also underlying the fact that while they want to go to a new world and like build this new world, you still have to acknowledge the history that has created this necessity. When the poem says... Though are we not America, her joints brittle and dragging a ripped gown through Oakland. That whole section of the poem talks about the ways in which the United States is literally built on the labor of Black bodies who didn't get the choice to be here by any means in a way that I thought was a meaningful sort of counterpoint to the New World thing where it's like the New World is... I think the ideal in this poem, right? But like the new world is also not possible if we don't talk about why things are the way they are and acknowledge and give reparations where they're due and things like that. So like there's a juxtaposition of the fact that the new world is really necessary, but it's not going to be made by completely erasing history. It's going to be made by reworking the power structures that still benefit from that history if that makes sense no i think that definitely makes sense and to be clear when i say start from scratch i don't necessarily mean erase i mean destroy these power structures because i don't think that they're useful and i think that if we're looking specifically at black oppression i don't think that it's possible to get rid of under the current global power structures Another thing that comes up a lot in this poem is God. That's one of the things that's introduced in the beginning. The speaker says, I've left in search of a new God. And that was also really interesting to me because I think it speaks again to these power structures, right? Like there are beautiful things about our world, but it's not, 
it's not serving everyone. And I thought that the the biblical imagery of talking about rebirth, right? Like there are only miracles, it seems like, for some, and, and, it, and it just doesn't exist, right? There is no God in this world. Like the idea of God is beautiful, but there is no God because God isn't able to bring back in the way that Lazarus was br- brought back any of these people who have died at the hands of police violence. I think also the God thing was really interesting to me because if you look at the Bible, I'm about to say something that some are going to find controversial. Brace yourselves. Hold <laughs> on to your butts. All of the people in it were black and brown, you know, but it's been, especially Christianity has been so co-opted by white people and white culture that it's been reshaped and revamped into ways that don't serve any everyone. And I think that that really comes into play when you see, I don't, I do not trust the God you have given us, right? Like, I don't trust a God that's been shaped by white hands and so specifically colonialism this god also it's not just the the colonialism like it's unable to bring these people back so do you think that suggests a sort of atheism or or what do you think that is is it like just lack of faith in in the system lack lack of faith in america that that's supposed to symbolize I th- yeah, I think that it's sort of the, the kind of thing where it's like, well, if you can't give me a God whose miracles are for all, then I don't want any God, you know, or like, I want a brand new one. I don't know that I necessarily read atheism off this poem. I think it. I read more the desire for new equality in the way we think and talk about religion. That makes sense. I think starting with the fact that it shouldn't be a controversial statement to say that, like, all of the people in the Bible were, bra- were like, black and brown, except for the Romans, who were the police force. So, like... Yeah, the Romans were the police force, and they were the only white people, and all of the white people in the Bible are pagans. Fun facts. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, that's that's more what I read off of it, I think, than, like, atheism, necessarily. The The speaker mentions the poplar tree. Which I thought was really interesting because I didn't know what that was, but I have taken English high school English class. So I was like, tree, I should look this up. And apparently for our listeners that might not know, the poplar tree is actually known as lynching tree. And so that is where a lot of black people were hung. They were hung specifically on poplar trees. And there have been various artists throughout history, black artists who have talked about this horrific history um billy holiday has a song called strange fruits talking about the poplar tree and the bodies are the fruits on it so that was a useful and informative thing to include in the poem i wonder what you think like what do you think the purpose of including the poplar tree was well it was i thought that it was really interesting specifically after the line i just don't see race because ultimately right like neither does death but that doesn't mean that death doesn't proportionally hit black communities you know and i feel like if, if we were talking about this a couple of years ago we'd be talking explicitly explicitly about like the higher rates at which people of color are killed but like honestly at this point it's just it feels almost like blanket death because we would when with covid you see that like the gross negligence of our current healthcare system leads to disproportionately way higher people of color also being sort of struck by by it and so i think that the idea about like it's a really powerful pushback and a really subtle pushback to the to what they were saying before about the fact uh, that they're tired of hearing people say i don't see race right especially in conjunction with other people who say things like go back to africa and how like all of these sentences are ultimately useless because you see as a white person who they're addressing in this poem what you want to see but ultimately we're still being killed at a disproportionately higher rate and i think that the poem addresses specifically you know like the violence that's done to black communities but given our current context i think it's i read it a lot more as like the both explicit violence and then the like implicit violence of negligence as well yeah I guess, too, I I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but, like, explicitly after the sentence, I don't see race, and then the line is, neither did the poplar tree. Yeah, the poplar tree couldn't see race either, but only Black people were hung from it. So I guess, too, that means, yeah, you're just, like, you're dismissing the plight of what it means to be Black in America. 
Absolutely. And I think that that line also pairs really well with the point of the poem where they say, why does it always have to be about race? Because you made it that way. Because you put an asterisk on my sister's gorgeous face. Call her pretty for a black girl. Because black girls go missing without so much as a whisper of where. Those two things really struck me. Because the poem is called Dear White America, right? Like it's it's very much a push back against what I think white people sort of as as a whole conglomerate have been at least taught, even if they don't actively believe it as individuals today, even though many still do. Those two pieces to me in conjunction really felt powerful because they're some of the most direct places where white America is like being addressed as being like, what do you mean? Why is it always about race? It's you're the ones who have made it this way. You're the ones who have created the structure and upheld the structure, right? I think that's the more important part, right? Because there's so much bitching and crying about the fact that like, well, we didn't make the world this way, right? Like our ancestors did. But the problem is like upholding these structures that make everything about race. Um, so for me, in conjunction, like those two things really spoke to a lot of the message of the poem. I think, um, and also in really harrowing ways because it ultimately, both of those passages do ultimately talk about the disproportionate deaths of Black people, right? Because, like, the se the second part ends up talking about the fact that, like, there isn't an amber alert for amber-skinned people, right? Like, there isn't the same care and thought being brought into people's, uh, to Black people's deaths. But then also something that's interesting is that it addresses like those really big systemic problems next to microaggressions, talking about like being pretty for a black girl, right? Like all of these things are being equated as being equally harmful, which I think is useful. I think that's useful too. And I think kind of along those lines, one of the other things that really struck me was at one point the speaker says, I tried to love you, but you spent my brother's funeral making plans for brunch, talking too loud next to his bones. And that also kind of really gets at the privilege thing for me and the idea of um, of microaggressions, but also like because of, of white complicity, I guess. Right. Because we can say Black Lives Matter on Facebook and Instagram as much as we want. But at the end of the day, we can also still go out and celebrate and still go on vacation to Georgia and, you know, go to brunch and have boozy cocktails while Black people are dying in the streets, while Black people are getting killed. Like, it, white America doesn't consider this their problem, and they still keep on living their lives. And I think also it goes beyond just complicity as well it's just like flat out disrespectful right like it shows that they just don't care you know like there's no moment of silence i don't know why i'm saying they like i'm not part of white america <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah we're all part of it and we're those of us that are white hopefully we can do better yeah that just it struck me i also i highlighted white bread voodoo i think because of my interest in witchcraft i don't know i thought that was really interesting because i don't know enough about the history of slave religion and like african religion that may have been transported but i know enough to know that christianity was used to kind of try and smash it out and that it wasn't really respected and it also just struck me because I, I know a little bit about the witchcraft community, and I do know that a lot of us um, appropriate our cult our practice from other cultures, and voodoo is one of those things that we tend to appropriate. So I thought the white bread voodoo line was really interesting, even though I don't know explicitly what it means. I thought it was interesting, too, um, especially because... So the whole like section is your master magic trick America. Now he's breathing. Now he don't abracadaver white bread voodoo uh, sorcery. You claim not to practice hand my cousin a pistol to do your work. I think it talks so deeply about the sense that like so many things about black culture have been deeply vilified because, you know, of just like explicit racism and the desire to spread Christianity everywhere. But in reality, this like, sorcery 
as they call it that we practice is the stuff that's actually evil right that's like dark magic so to speak you know uh the evil side of things yeah yeah all of these things about i think um i feel like most you're right yeah most of african-american culture is vilified it's popularized and appropriated but when it's actually done by african-americans or people that are dark-skinned it's seen as dangerous like well i think that we should say more broadly black culture because i know a lot of voodoo comes from caribbean yeah, you're right. Like that, uh, just to you know, respect the diaspora. But I totally agree with you. Otherwise, okay. Yes, you are correct. Yeah, black culture is vilified, and that's not cool. And we see it and as it, like being thuggish. Yeah, and it goes beyond things that are like really sort of like in historical roots like that. Like all of that grows into ways in which like you have cases that dreadlocks, for example, are somehow less professional in the workplace and stuff. Right, mm-hmm. like. Or even afros. Yeah, and that stuff is the stuff that's considered microaggressions a lot of the time, right? But, like, in actuality, when you weave it into this tapestry of context and history, like, it's not just a microaggression, it's a macroaggression, because it's part of a larger series, a larger system of things. Yeah. Was there anything else in this poem that you really want to talk about? I don't think so, because I think that looking at the time we've been recording, we only have time to talk about two poems for sure. So I think that we should maybe switch gears, especially because the next poem really plays nicely off this one. You want to explain your uh, your theory about how I'm going to address the myriad slurs that are used in this poem? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, well, first of all, because Maggie's reading this poem, I'm going to ask her, like, what things are you comfortable with saying? Because we have a variation of the N-word but we also have the words fag and dyke, which are also slurs. So what th- what are you are you comfortable saying, bitch, and those other two slurs that I just said? I mean, I don't mind the, like, swearing, obviously, but, like, I really don't want to, I don't think I want to say any of the slurs. <laughs> okay, okay. So originally what I was planning on doing is at least just for the N-word, but we can do it for the other two slurs that I mentioned to you. Is I was going to say, I was going to beep it out and just like leave a pause when that happens and then beep it out during the recording. But I'm saying this on air so that you guys can know that this is included in the poem. And Vita E, I don't know if this poem in particular is recorded on YouTube, but Vita E is also a spoken word poet. So I do encourage you to all look at their work. We're going to include some links in this description. But yes, these words are used and Maggie doesn't feel comfortable saying them, so we're not going to. We're just going to beep them out. But they're used and they're meaningful, so just know that. And also being written by a Black trans author who has every right to, like, use that language in whatever way feels right to them as it relates to their identity and their experience. I'm just not going to come out here and, like, also use that language just because I'm reading a poem, you know? Yes. I'm going to real quickly give Vita E's background. So Vita E identifies as a neurodivergent queer Black trans femme artist, and they use they, them, and she, her pronouns according to their Facebook page. They were raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and work as a Black trans artist, activist, and educator. And they were a finalist in the Capturing Fire Poetry Slam in D.C., very cool human. All right, I shall I shall read this poem now. The company you keep, a poem for my family. When the company you keep wants to kill me because people like me are bundles of twigs fit only for fire, I stop responding to messages. I never know if you opening your mouth will sound like them. Never know if them being real means I'm just a but never a real just a bitch who needs taught a lesson with blood as my ink, labeling me only incorrect. When the company you keep wants to kill me, I don't accept your friend request online. The friends you have already consider me a threat, and you consider them the First Amendment warriors incapable incapable of grasping the term collateral damage. Simply being free to use words that feel like prison bards, trapping me inside toxicity until I am no longer breathing. Spending more time defending the use of the words than telling people to stop using the words that make the target marker on my body bigger. When that company you keep wants to kill me, I struggle to trust your promises of protection. It is not feasible to believe you'd protect me from violence in person. When the man who tells me I deserve to be slapped with a bullet reminds me of your bestie. 
reminds me of the time they shared the mur- that murderous intent all over the internet. Bodies like mine only viral post-mortem, and you literally like every single moment of it. Well, then company you keep wants to kill me. I don't visit when you visit. I don't pick up when you call. Too scared you'll, lo- you'll feel like them, sound like them. Too scared you have become them. When the company you keep wants to kill me, I don't keep you company. That is another really powerful poem. And yeah, I think it could be, I think the sentiment could be applicable to a lot of different issues. But I think in particular, it does sound like, and and based on the title of the poem, it sounds like the speaker is talking to their specific community and telling them, hey, please stop associating with these people who hate me, which I think is a really important message right now when we are talking about both pride and black rights. Mm -hmm. I think it really speaks to the idea of like empty words, which are empty because they don't follow up with actions, right? Like you can say all that you want, but it doesn't mean anything when I don't believe that you would protect me in person, right? Like, and also when you seem to fundamentally misunderstand what I actually need to be protected from. I read a lot of this as being partially about like, the LGBTQ community, especially the parts where they talk about, you know, spending more time defending the use of blank and blank than telling people to stop using words that make the target on my, the target marker on my body bigger. How like for, it seems like the speaker in this poem is saying, you know, like at this current moment in time, being black is significantly more dangerous for me than like other parts of my identity. And yet you only focus on the parts in which you only focus on the parts of my identity, which either you maybe like can identify with me with like maybe we share certain things but then refuse to denounce the things that that put me in more danger i think it's also just a poem about complicity yeah i agree i think yeah that's part of why i found like maggie and i were searching of poets to to do for this episode and that was one of the reasons why i was like oh this poem because i know at least in For me right now, I'm thinking a lot about white complicity, but there's also complicity with a bunch of different things. And this is a a speaker who's clearly hitting that over the head, being like, hey, you're friends with this person on Facebook and you're literally liking their posts that are hateful and slurs against people like me. I also thought the the phrase never know if if them being real N words means I'm just an N word but never a real N-word, just a bitch N-word. I thought that was really interesting because I know that that word is commonly meant to, in in some cases, it can be used to like include people into your community. And the way it's spelled, it's used in that way of being like, like a bro kind of, like you're one of my pals. So the idea of being like a real person, a real Black person versus just like, a bitch black person I thought was a direct call to the speaker's uh, identity identification with things that are feminine. And it like, it's just, it's just incredibly like it, it speaks to a, a really hateful ideology. Like you can't be yourself and also identify with things that are feminine, I guess. I don't. Well, I thought it was also interesting because it's like, I'm one of the bros, but if you ever saw me as what that word actually, like, signifies, then suddenly I wouldn't be one of the bros anymore, right? Like, and I don't mean bros necessarily as, like, a, like, one of the group. That's probably a better word for it. I just meant bros sort of, like, colloquially, colloquially, but, yeah. like, yeah. I think that's, in the way that the this variation of the N-word is spelt, that's usually what it means. Like, bro could be another alternative. Yeah, for sure. But it's like suddenly if you change that ending, I can't I can't be both almost, you know, like you yeah. uh, you, can only, you can only identify me. You only identify me, include me, etc. If I am only one thing. That's something I found really powerful about this poem is that it's such a cry to action for the need for intersectionality because people are just are more than one thing all the time. And if you can only ever identify with people based on one thing, that's where problems start, right? Like even if it's like as basic it, it like not even oh sorry I lost my train of thought I got upset there for a second but like <laughs> when you only identify with people who like tick off certain numbers of like identifiers that agree with yours then you are 
excluding parts about that other person for sure but you're also creating these in groups that are harmful and exclusionary as well yeah i mean we talked about this a little bit last week but like you can't you can't fight for something you can't fight for something like justice or equality and do it right without being intersectional without i don't know like when we were talking about feminism i I spoke about this with my partner recently, actually, about J.K. Rowling's comments because he's older than me. I was kind of trying to struggle to understand why I was so upset about her comments on trans people. And I had to explain to him that even though she has, even though her idea that like her experience is going to be different as a woman that was born female than than a trans person that doesn't like that doesn't mean that trans people can't also be women because no two women's experiences are the same right and if we're going to be true feminists we have to like be intersectional and accept that no two women's experiences are the same and that different women have different life experiences and one doesn't just necessarily negate the other because a lot of her comments she's tried to justify as being like this is dangerous. The idea that sex and gender are different is dangerous somehow to my identity as a woman and to my protection as a woman. And I just don't think that's the case. But I digress. <laughs> Let's go back to the poem. Something else that I thought was really relevant, especially in the conversation that we did have last week. Yeah, last week. We've been recording these episodes in all kinds of orders. Um <laughs> but I think it's last week's episode, is that this poem talks so much about the idea of performative activism as well with like specifically calling out social media, not just in the in the sense of like bodies like mine only viral post-mortem and you literally like every single moment of it, which like so clearly to me parallels what's happening right now with activism for Breonna Taylor and for George Floyd and for a lot of what started this current uprising, I would say. But then also talks about the other insidious parts of it as well. Like the friends that you already have consider me threat and you consider them First Amendment warriors incapable of grasping the term collateral damage. And like the whole First Amendment warriors thing really spoke to me with the idea of like social media and things like that. And also the inability to see the way in which those microaggressions are harmful. Like they are collateral damage and they do... And defending that in any way, even if you're trying to take a sort of neutral quote unquote stance and be like, well, everyone can say whatever the fuck they want, like, is harmful. It causes active harm. Yeah. There's a difference between harmful censorship and just not being a dick. Right? Like, yes, everyone has the right to say whatever they want to. But that's really just so that we're not like dealing with mind police <laughs> it's really just so that we can still have different ideas and the government can't punish us it's not so that we can use slurs and hateful language against other people yeah i mean sure you can say whatever the fuck you want but people can say whatever they want back to you right like people don't have to agree with you and people also don't have to give you like individually in conversations don't have to give you the platform or the time of day to spew any of that kind of hate so like mm -hmm. yeah that's my two cents on that specific matter anyways but i i just thought that this was a really nuanced this this poem felt like really Denise smith has a very surrealist style to to a lot of their poetry like that's sort of what they're known for but this poem spoke to me so much because it was so based in just like the reality of 2020 culture it felt like and how things are just done <laughs> you know like how people interact uh and the kinds of interactions that people have that it hit me i don't want to say more than the smith poem but it hit me differently than in the smith poem because it's very like this is just flat out what is happening you know rather than talking a little bit about rather than using a lot of metaphors sort of layered together to unpack that it's really just flat out like nah man <laughs> this isn't cool and i need you to stop doing it because i'm not i i'm going to practice what i preach also because like i'm not going to keep you company if you keep company with all of these people right like i'm telling you not to do it but then also like i'm not your friend anymore either you know 
Yeah, but I also think, too, it's different because this person this person can't keep company with this person who's keeping this bad company because it's a danger to them. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely for different reasons. Um, I just think that the action, like, statement of it is interesting because the whole poem is criticizing talking without taking action. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add about this poem? I don't know that I do. Let me look real quick. I think I am also good with this poem. It was beautiful. Vita E is a gem that I did not know about before. Yeah. I think we touched on everything I wanted to talk about. So, I mean, I just wanted to say that pride is about loving yourself and being proud of your your own skin. And I think that's something that we should all be fighting for. And I think that we should fight for everyone to have that opportunity and to define ourselves and love ourselves freely, right? We shouldn't be allowing other people to define us by slurs or by societal images of us. And we deserve the right to set flame to oppressive expectations and to live safely in our own skin. And I think that's what America is trying to wrap its head around right now. Because for so long, we've just been a lot of us, not everyone, of course, because a lot of people can't be. But people like me, for the most part, have been okay just allowing this structure to go on. And it's time to change that because we're never going to get to a time in which everyone can be prideful of themselves and be allowed to love who they want to love and not have these rigid binary expectations on them if we don't fix all of these structural problems. Absolutely. And it's not just about fighting for being able to be comfortable in your own skin. It's about fighting to make sure everyone can say that um, because it's just so inherently untrue as a statement right now. Yes. Um, Harmony, do you think the poems we read today are feminist poems? I think they most certainly are. It didn't talk. Well, it did talk. One of them talked explicitly about no I didn't they never neither of them really talks explicitly about gender but one of them was definitely kind of referring to that uh Vita E's poem was definitely referring I think to their identity as somebody in the LGBTQ community and as somebody who is trans yeah so I guess maybe not inherently about gender and maybe not inherently feminist but also yes because they're talking about oppression and this structure, which I think is a lot like patriarchy, that is, is oppressing them. So, I, well, no, I don't know. I don't know. They could be feminists. I don't know. I know Vita E at least identifies as femme and therefore is talking about their LGBTQ experience. And I'm inclined to think that that is slightly feminist. Yeah. I don't know about the other one, if it could be inherently feminist, but I definitely think that it's worthwhile and I'm glad we read it and talked about it. I don't know. I think it at least talks about feminist themes right like it talks specifically about the fact that like black women you know go missing and no one cares and things like that you know that's true and the pretty for a black girl i think that there's lots of things about these poems that are that are feminist and also like we were talking about last week talking about intersectional identity i think is sort of an inherently feminist thing to do because people just aren't one thing so when you're fighting the patriarchy in any ways you're also fighting all of these other oppressive systems like harmony was saying that uphold patriarchy and keep patriarchy in place just like patriarchy upholds racist systems and keeps them in place like they're very hand in hand together so i feel like when you're fighting one in a lot of ways you're you're fighting both but it's important i think especially for white feminists to be really explicit and intentional about fighting both yeah. Which is, you know, what Harmony and I try and do with this podcast. I agree. And I think those people, I think people who do have intersectional identities are being inherently feminist when they use their voices, right? That's part of the reason I really like that all three of the poems, the poets that we were supposed to talk about today. The third one was Andrea Gibson, by the way. We don't have time to talk about them right now. We will be talking about them next season. But I do suggest that you go check out their work as well. They have a lot of really cool feminist work talking about their, you know, experience being gender nonconforming. Are also spoken word poets because it's not just about the power of words on paper. It's also the power of like literally standing on a stage and like 
saying what you have to say to an audience. You know, I think that for me, and the reason that I've always like spoken word poetry is that that's always felt like really powerful and empowering. And I, I love seeing things that happen both on the page and the stage for that reason. Me too. I like that. I like that. I'm excited to learn more about spoken word poetry in next season. Guys, we are almost done with this season. So you guys should get excited for what's coming up because it's exciting. I can tell you that. Uh, What are you reading right now, Maggie? We've recorded most of these episodes within a couple of days of each other. So the same stuff that I've been reading, which is I'm still in the middle of The Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler, and I'm going to be reading War and Peace Until I Die. What are you reading? So I took a break from all of the other books that I was reading. I've started new books. I keep like, you know, shifting around. So I like started uh, reading again, Why the Cage Bird Sings. I'm still on the Rojava book. But I took a little break the past few days because I, I have been rereading Harry Potter for Comfort, even though... JK Rowling has really disappointed me. And I encourage everyone in response, if you're angry about JK Rowling, let's donate to some transgender causes. Double points if it's Black transgender causes, because there are a lot of good organizations that we will link in this episode that cater specifically to the Black trans community, because as we've discovered today, they are disproportionately affected by violence. But (laughs) I'm reading Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which is my favorite Harry Potter book. And I am so, so happy to see Luna Lovegood fight wizard Nazis. It's really warms my little cockles. Okay. (laughs) Do you have homework for yourself? I don't know. I feel like with these episodes, it's hard because the whole thing is just like a call to action, right? So like just continuing to donate and support all Black Lives Matter movements, specifically those that that like are supporting right now trans and gender nonconforming people, I think is my like continual goal. But it's just sort of all the specific actions that I've been trying to take over the last couple of weeks to sort of more focused, you know? What about you? Yeah, I think that revolution is hard and it's hard, especially to like keep it going and keep your motivation going, especially when I keep telling everyone, I'm like, hey, the revolution's coming. But I've been saying this since the beginning of COVID. And so people keep laughing at me. And so you get a little disheartened and you start to like slip back into normal life. So I think that I want to like start drawing out my new normal and not let the fact that I'm not going to be like in full revolutionary mode deter me from fighting for people's rights on the everyday. Yeah, absolutely. Great homework. Next week, we're talking about some poetry by Audre Lorde because it's the last bite-sized bits of the season. We're in 1970. So uh, we're talking about a lot of poetry this month. I don't know. For me, pride and poetry feel very, like, interconnected. I don't know why, but, like, I just, they feel right together for me personally (laughs) and I get to decide what we read some of the time. So that's what we're doing. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. It also both begins with P. It does. I know. They just, it just sounds right. It feels right. All right. Talk to you guys next week then. Bye. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.